0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Symphonic Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite. And I'm Andrew Owen. And today we're going to be talking about Hector Berlioz. Um, He he was born in, let's just get right into it today. Sure. He was born in 1803 and he died in 1869. Berlioz's father was a doctor and a prominent citizen of La Côte-Saint-André. As a child, he was taught uh, the flute and guitar and began to compose when he was 14. Even as a child, his mind responded vividly to romantic literature, both French and Latin, and he felt the in- impulse always to express the response in musical form. At the age of 17, he went to Paris to pursue a medical career, remained there f- remaining there for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean, he, he liked medicine, right? <laughs>
1: Supposedly. He didn't Not stay there either. very long. So in Paris, yeah. uh, his encounter with music, especially opera, weakened his already slight interest in medicine. Uh, he soon ab- abandoned those studies in favor of a career as a composer, uh, taking lessons with Le Serre, uh, and later attending the Conservatoire. And you have to forgive my really thick French accent. What can I say? It's perfect. I know, I know. It is. No, no, no. Uh, he became uh, an habitué of the opera and a profound admirer of the French tradition, especially Gluck and Spontini which ironically aren't that French of composers. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the face of parental displeasure, he earned a living at first by singing in a theater chorus and by giving guitar lessons, uh, though later he became best known as a critic and a conductor. The guy never actually played the piano. He was just a guitarist. Mm -hmm. Uh, His instrument was the... Orchestra, as we'll learn about later. Yeah. Uh, the occupation of journalism uh, sustained him throughout his working life, so he did have a day job. And though he declared a profound distaste for it, he was one of the most
0: perceptive and vital writers of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, several strong passions determined the development of Berlioz's music. After Gluck, Gluck, he discovered Weber and later Beethoven. He greatly disliked Rossini and, the, and Italian music. Uh, in 1827, he was introduced to Shakespeare's plays, uh, followed soon after by Goethe's Faust, uh, and, um, and other of his favorite writers uh, admirer, uh, admired also by leading figures of French uh, Romanticism were uh, Scott O'Brien, uh, Thomas Moore, Byron, Scott, Fenimore Cooper, and E.T.A. Hoffman, as well as the uh, younger French writers themselves like Victor Hugo, um, Alfred, Alfred de Vigny, and Auguste Barbier, and others. Yeah, he was fascinated by by literature. Yeah, that was that's part of I mean why
1: we call it the Romantic period? Other than it being romantic, like we think of romance as dealing with literature. Yeah, so he's really one of our good people bringing mm-hmm. literature into music. Uh, so Berlioz's first substantial musical composition, of course, uh, was a uh, was a mass uh, written which he wrote in eighteen twenty four. He later disowned it. He didn't like the piece so much. It was rediscovered in Belgium in 1992, uh, and was found to foreshadow a number of passages in his mature works. It, it had several of the some of the bits of music that he would later use. That might have had something to do with why he canned it. Uh, the mass was followed by an opera, Le Franc Juge. Uh, you gotta love French. Uh, which is, ma- is mostly lost. Uh, from 1826 to 1830, he competed annually for the Prix de Rome, but won it only on his fifth attempt, because he just wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not the case. Uh, an overpowering passion for the Irish Shakespearean actress Harriet Smithson. Uh, whom he first saw in 1827 led to the composition in 1830 of the Symphonie Fantastique, his first masterpiece, a five-movement program symphony in which the tale of unrequited love is recounted. And there's so much, so many fun things to say about oh, No. Smithson. Yes. He was kind of a creep, too, man. He was definitely a creep. He's the kind of guy that if you saw at a bar,
0: you would just ignore. That's true. As best you could. That is true. <laughs> I mean, the guy went nuts. He, yeah, he was completely obsessed. Um, So, uh, after he won the Prix de Rome, um, this gave Berlioz a scholarship for five years, uh, the first two of which were spent away from Paris, uh, mostly in Rome. He returned in 1832 uh, with Lelio, uh, a a sequel to the Symphony Fantastique, which includes parts for solo singers, a chorus, and an actor. He was introduced to Harris Smithson, uh, declared his love, and married her in 1833. Um, settling, settling down to nine years of constant labor as a composer, critic, and conductor. A series of works came in close succession in this period. Uh, he wrote Harold in Italy, a symphony for, um, with viola solo, uh, written in 1834. He also wrote the opera uh, Benvenuto Cellini, uh, from 1836, which was played at the opera in 1838 and rejected by Parisian public. Uh, he wrote the Requiem, uh, Grand Mess de Motes, Uh, written in 1837. He also wrote uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, which is a large choral symphony from 1839. He wrote The Grande Symphonie funebre et triomphe for military band, uh, written in 1840. Uh, And the song cycle Le Nuits from 1841. Uh, He also wrote many smaller songs and choruses in this period and gave several concerts every season. He received two government commissions but secured no permanent position in Paris.
1: So yeah, in 1842 Berlioz began a series of concert tours to Belgium and Germany and Austria and for the next 20 years was frequently abroad. The guy went all around. He traveled many times to Germany, five times uh, to London and twice to Russia. Uh, La Nation de Faust was composed during one such tour in 1845-46. Uh, to 46. Uh, The gradual failure of his marriage and the awareness of more appreciative audiences abroad kept him almost constantly on the move. Uh, He became disillusioned and embittered about Paris, uh, especially after the failure of La Damnation de Faust, and he watched with sadness the general decline in taste and artistic fervor in the latter part of his life. Um, He became gradually uh, less and less inclined to undertake new
0: compositions as he aged. Mm -hmm. Um, His Tedeon was composed in 1849, and a brief choral work, La Fuite en Egypt, which is The Flight into Egypt, from 1850. Um, thereafter, Berlioz wrote no music for three years and was persuaded only with difficulty to enlarge this work into a choral trilogy, uh, Le Fans du Christ, uh, which is the, the Infancy of Christ, uh, whose great and unexpected success in, in 1854 in part encouraged him to embark on the largest and grandest work of his all, whole output, which is the Trojans, the, 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 which is, the Troians, which is a, a five-act opera based on Virgil. He had uh, contemplated this ambitious project for many years and finally set it down from 1856 to 1858. He never succeeded in, t- in getting it performed complete, um, but a, trans- a truncated version of uh, The Last Three Acts uh, was staged in Paris in 1863. Uh, uh, he also wrote uh, the comic opera uh, Beatrice and Benedict, uh, based on Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. And this was staged at Baden-Baden in 1862. Yeah, we did uh, We
1: did that here at LSU uh, mm-hmm. about a year ago-ish. Yeah, uh, so it was, it was done. pretty fun. It's done, it was a lot of fun. That's a good time. Yeah. Uh, had a good time with that. So, uh, the last dozen years of Berlioz's life uh, were chronically affected by Crohn's disease. And after 1863, he sank into a deepening despair, especially after the death of his only son, Louis, uh, in 1867. He died in 1869. Uh, His memoirs compiled over a long period were published in 1870. So as I said earlier, Berlioz was no pianist. He wrote no solo music for the instrument, nor is there any chamber music. His works use voices and instruments in many combinations and in many genres. I mean more than pretty much anyone before him. I mean he was able to do yeah. these strange colors and mm-hmm. new new sounds. Mm-hmm. He made a special study of orchestral technique and instrumentation and published a treatise on the subject, The Grand Traité d'instrumentation de Orchestrations moderne, uh, which I guess just means the, the large treatise on instrumentation, orchestra- and modern orchestration. Mm. It's you know, uh, the English translation was published in eighteen fifty five uh, on the French eighteen forty three version. Uh, he also wrote a handbook on conducting, Le Chef d'Orchestre. That's right. All orchestras must have a chef. A chef. <laughs> uh, no, the, the head of the orchestra, the chef, the, the main one. Uh, in, in eighteen fifty five, he wrote this book. So he was big on conducting. that also was a relatively new genre to begin with. 1856 genre people hadn't been conducting for terribly long, mm-hmm. as we talked about in the first podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, his orchestral style is distinctive and brilliant, and it greatly influenced future developments uh, that other composers like Liszt and Wagner and the Russians would later do. So Liszt was for a long period one of Berlioz's closest friends. He never established the same rapport with Wagner, however, though their encounters were usually fraternal and friendly.
0: Um, so he wrote many songs with piano accompaniment, and the better ones, such as uh, "La captive" from 1832 and "Le Nuit de" uh, between, written between 1840 and 1841, uh, were later orchestrated. Uh, none of his music, none of his music is abstract or purely formal. Each work has a poetic or evocative title, or a song text, or a program, and this literal, literal literally or pictorial content, content uh, determines its style, its instrumentation, its mood, and its form. Um, His pieces thus often fall between established genres such as concerto and symphony, opera and cantata, or scene and song. Uh, Much of it relates to his favorite uh, literature or personal experience, uh, like the symphony fantastiques and Lelio uh, sprang from uh, two love affairs. Uh, Shakespeare inspired the Tempest overture in 1830, in 1830 uh, King Lear overture in 1831. Um, a group of Hamlet pieces uh, written in 1844, uh, uh, Roma- Romeo and Juliet uh, from 1839, Beatrice and Benedict from 1862. Um, Go- uh, Goethe um, uh, inspired his uh, f- from Faust in- inspired his huge uh, scenes the Faust. Um, in written in 1829, and its fuller composition, La Damnation de Faust, um, from 1846. Um, and also from Scott uh, came uh, overtures uh, Wave, Waverly uh, from 1827 and Rob, Rob Roy from 1831. Uh, Byron and his own travels inspired Harold in Italy from 1834. So, he, a lot of inspiration and, you know, it's not just writing music because, oh, it's music. It's right. like everything ha- has a meaning behind it for him. Pretty much nothing he writes
1: is just music for music's mm-hmm. sake. I mean, everything has some kind of extra musical meaning. Mm-hmm. That's what he's going for. Uh, that's why we teach him in music appreciation classes as the program symphony guy, the yeah. guy that writes program music. His grand symphony, funèbre uh, et triomphe, is a ceremonial work for military band. You have to forgive my slowness in reading French. I really don't speak a word of the language. <laughs> uh, deriving in style from the stirring outdoor music of the French Revolution, this piece is. Uh, the, the Grand Messe de Morts. the Requiem, is related to the same tradition, with its four groups of brass added to the huge orchestral and choral forces. Uh, Berlioz called the Te Deum the brother of the Requiem, it being also conceived for large forces, including a chorus of 600 children, which is just enough, enough. <laughs> <laughs> just enough people, in a large building. He also insisted on the proper relationship of music to its spatial surroundings, uh, hating noisy music in small theaters but exploiting the extraordinary effects of well-distributed masses and great architectural spaces. So this guy was interested in the spatial, where you put the instrument and how big the, the actual room is. He is writing for the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he writes music which is important to know if you're ever doing his music. Uh, so L'Anfance du Christ is a different kind of sacred work being intimate in scale and devotional in style uh, though Berlioz was not himself an orthodox believer uh, it, it's hints at operatic stage action are found similarly in La Damnation de Faust which is a dramatic concert work with many suggestions of movement and, um, and action but nonetheless conceived for the theater of the imagination.
0: Yeah. Um, Berlioz always liked to amplify the scene with the unseen. Um, thus, the nightmarish devilry of the sym- symphony fantastique uh, is purely to be imagined, not seen. Uh, so too are the will-o'-the-wisp and the inhabitants of uh, Pandemonium in La damnation de Faust. Um, in his operas, there are many offstage scenes. In Romeo and Juliet, uh, the love scene is evoked by the orchestra alone. Um, um, we are left to imagine the lovers' exchange of words. Um, this dependence on the imagination must be co- um, coupled with his intrinsic faith in expression as the cornerstone of his aesthetic outlook. Uh, he held firm to his belief in the capacity of music to embody images, ideas, and feelings, ranging from the literal le- literalness of program music to the less easily defined area where uh, the music reflects its text or subject with as much veracity as possible.
1: Yeah, the composer's personal identification with a subject and his integrity in presenting it in musical form were paramount. As the whole thing that he's shooting for here is that, uh, that, the, that the music should be a representation of the composer's own emotions and feelings. Hmm. Um, and That was the big thing for him. Uh, and of course, these ideas were shared by many romantic artists, people outside of music, also visual artists all these things. And in his early works, Berlioz seems to conform to the popular image of the inspired creative artist, uh, cutting new paths and discarding out more forms. Uh, this guy uh, he, he was trying to just branch out into something new. He wanted to be his own man. He's an adult, darn it. Uh, but after the innovations of his first works, revolutionary though they were, he preferred to consolidate his style and technique, and he returned more and more to the outlook and classical serenity of Gluck. Uh, Les Troyens can be uh, described as a deeply classical work imbued throughout with romantic passion, some sort of a neoclassical romanticism. <laughs> um, people are always. I mean, there's no such. There's no such thing as as periods, are there? Really, true. That's true. I mean, we have to sort of. Take every piece for its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so although Berlioz admired such contemporary composers as Liszt and Mendelssohn, uh, who were very much contemporaries of him, uh, he, he took little interest in imitating their music. He, he did not want to imitate. He remained stylistically aloof and independent instead. He tried to be his own man. Uh, he thus had relatively few direct imitators and no pupils. The guy didn't teach really anybody. Uh, his music was already strikingly individual, and
0: it can't just be categorized simply. Yeah, so he seems like a very, you know, almost like a recluse in many aspects. You know, he's trying to be different in, in a lot of ways. I mean, music, but also in the way that, I mean, he didn't teach people. And he's trying to be his own person, I guess. Very romantic. That's what he's going for. <laughs> so his views on all aspects of music were repeatedly and congently expressed in his uh filetons, which are leaflets, uh, for the daily or and weekly press. Uh, so, the misunderstanding from which he suffered in his lifetime, and for many years thereafter, is hard to comprehend. He published three collections of articles which reveal his uh, reverent attitude to the composers he uh, most admired, which were Gluck, and Spontini, and Beethoven. Um, his scorn for the uh, pettiness of Parisian music, um, his longing for a society where the arts might be f- um, foster free of commercialization and self-interest, and his uh, moral sense of humor. Berlioz Creed, passion for art, belief in the exclusive nature of art, and powerful commitment, no matter the odds. Yeah, it's
1: that's, that's, that's true. I mean, he, he was going for individualism above all. Mm-hmm. And he had a very strange life story. I mean, we've already brushed on a lot of it, but the guy was, for all intents and purposes, a little, a little nuts. I mean, yeah. uh, before he fell in love with Harriet Smithson, he was actually uh, engaged to another woman. Uh, and she and they were, they got along okay. It's just that when, when he was uh, traveling off and about, he received word that uh, she was engaged to another man. That other man being the son of the classical composer Ignaz Pleyel, one of Mozart's rivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this guy Camille Playel uh, was engaged to be married to this uh, to Berlioz's first fiance. So that was that was fine. Berlioz didn't take the news well. You know, we we are emotional creatures, we humans. The the so Berlioz devised a really long and complicated plan to assassinate both his wife, both his ex-fiancee and her new fiancé by um, uh, poison. Well, he was going to shoot him, but he brought poison in case the the pistol jammed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, on the train ride over there, he slowly changed his mind. You know, like. A, like a lot of guys do when they go to the store and they, they're in the really long grocery line and they're starting to put away <laughs> things as they well, I don't really need that, I don't really need that. Well, he kind of did that on this long train ride. He's like, well, maybe this is a little nuts. Yeah. And also he had left his disguise and a saddlebag in the previous thing and he, he forgot his vial of poison. and just he, he couldn't get anything right. He couldn't even kill his, uh, his ex fiance and her new fiance. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just one one little snippet from his life. I mean, mm-hmm. not even including uh, what we're about to talk about, Symphony Fantastique. This mm-hmm. is this piece that's about um, his obsession with a new woman, an Irish actress named uh, Harriet Smithson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the Symphonie Fantastique uh, is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, it's um, This is a program symphony. This is a work for in 5 movements that depicts Berlioz's obsession with this woman. Uh, this is entirely autobiographical music. Uh, so the entire title is Symphonie Fantastique, Epistode de la Vie d'Artist. Uh, sym- a Fantastic Symphony, an episode in the life of an artist. Uh, un cinq in five parts. Uh, this is Berlioz's Opus 14, uh, It and it, it's a program symphony, written in 1830. Uh, it's an, that's one of those years that are drilled into us musicologists. 1830, Symphonie Fantastique. Mm-hmm. It's an important piece of the Romantic period. It's, it's one of those uh, defining moments and romanticism. When we think of what is romantic music, the brain, uh, for, of the brain of us musicologists tend to go straight to this piece because he is really branching out of form, branching yeah. out of former things and just letting uh, music, letting the, 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 the orchestra simply imitate life, mm-hmm. letting it be its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a popular piece. Concert audiences all over the world have enjoyed this work. It was first performed at the Paris Conservatoire uh, in December 1830. Uh, the work was repeatedly revived after that and subsequently became a favorite in Paris. It's never suffered any period oh, yeah. of, of oh, unpopularity. Yeah,
0: it's it's great. It's performed all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Leonard Bernstein described the symphony as the first musical expedition into psychedelia uh, because um, of its uh, hallucinatory, and dreamlike nature, and because history suggests Berlioz composed at least a portion of it under the influence of opium. According to Bernstein, Berlioz tells tells it like it is. Uh, You take a trip, uh, you wind up screaming at your own funeral.
1: Look, it's so simple. You take a trip, you wind up screaming at your own funeral. No big whoop. Uh, In 1831, Berlioz wrote a lesser-known sequel to the work, Lelio, for actor, orchestra, and chorus. Uh, and Fr- Franz Liszt made a piano transcription of this uh, symphony in 1833. This work is not that well known. People <laughs> do not p- perform this that often. Yeah, to be fair, Symphony Fantastique is significantly better than that work. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's okay.
0: The score calls for a total of over 90 instruments, uh, the most of any symphony written to that time. Um, though the Symphony Fantastique uh, calls for only uh, a fairly large orchestra, sir- such conductors as Subir Meta and Gustavo Dudamel. Uh, have conducted performances of the work with orchestras of over 200 players. I mean, we know the orchestra's big, but you know, some conductors, like, go all out and put as many... Just go dub- double, double everything. Double everything, yeah, yeah, triple everything. Triple everything, actually, yeah, yeah. extra. You never want double,
1: because then they'll start conflicting with each other, right? Oh, that's exactly it. <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, so, the, so this symphony, this work, uh, it tells a story of an artist who's gifted with, uh, with a lively imagination. Uh, he seems to have poisoned himself with opium, Uh, in the depths of despair because of hopeless love. The sky is just very much in love with some woman. Could be anybody, right, uh, Harriet Smithson? Uh, Berlioz provided his own program notes for each movement of the work, which we'll read in a little bit. Uh, He prefaces his notes with the following instructions, quote, The composer's intention has been to develop various episodes of the life of an artist, insofar as they lend themselves to musical treatment. As the work cannot rely on the assistance of speech, the plan of the instrumental drama needs to be set out in advance. The following program must therefore be considered as the spoken text of an opera, which serves to introduce musical movements and to motivate their character and expression,
0: unquote. Like, like we said before, it has five moments, this piece, uh, instead of the classic um, conventional four moments of, of, of earlier symphonies. The first moment is called Reveries, Pas- Passions, which is Reveries and Passions. Uh, the second moment, on Ball, which is uh, a dance, a ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third moment, uh, Zin aux uh, sino Camps, which is uh, scene in the Fields. Saint-Ouchamp. Saint-Ouchamp. Thanks. French is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, not,
1: no offense to our French listeners. I'm just very, very American. <laughs> I give it a good college try. But. Oh, me too.
0: The <laughs> uh, fourth moment, uh, which is uh, Marche à Suspice, which is uh, march to the Scaffold. And the last moment, Song du Nuit du Sabbat, which is uh, Dream of the Night of the Sabbath. The fourth moment, uh de which is Reveries and Fashions, um, uh, I'm going to read the program, which uh, comes from eight, the, his program notes from 1845. He writes, quote, The author imagines that a young music- musician, afflicted by the sickness of spirit, which a, fam- a famous writer has called the vagueness of passions, uh, sees for the first time a woman who unites all the charms of the ideal person his imagination uh, was dreaming of and falls desperately in love with her mm-hmm. by a strange anomaly uh, the beloved image never presents itself to the artist's mind without being associated with a musical idea in which he recognizes a certain quality of passion, but endowed with the nobility and shyness which he credits up to the object of his love so I guess this dude is having a trip and he associates this music with the the person that he doesn't see her but he hears this this idea. It's an obsessive musical motive. Mm-hmm. He, he draws, he goes to it over and over again, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this melodic image um, and his model keep haunting him ceas- ceaselessly like uh, uh, a double uh, uh, ide-fix. Well let's talk about the ide-fix. The ide-fix is basically that theme that we are ju- we were just talking about. It's the, the theme that repre- represents the beloved, uh, which I think is something like it goes yes, forever. A, it's it's kind of, it's long.
1: It's well, a very, very long. It's melody. a long melody. I mean, if you ever talk about this symphony, as long as you say the two words ide fixe, people will assume you know what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. You don't have to, yeah, exactly. You don't have to know a thing about this piece, just, just know the, the two words ide fixe, ide fixe. And, and you'll fixe. satisfy every music appreciation teacher <laughs>
0: <laughs> in, in the country, I promise. <sharpet> Um, so this this uh, this mo- this melody comes back in absolutely every movement of the piece, of course, um, and it launches the allegro at the beginning. Uh, the transition um, from this stage of dreamy melancholy, uh, interrupted interrupted by uh, occasional upsurges ob- ob- of aimless joy, uh, to the lyric's passion, with its ar- outburst of fury and jealousy. Its returns uh, of tenderness, its tears, its its religious consolations, uh, all this forms the subject of the first movement. Um, uh, The first movement is radical in its harmonic outline, uh, building a vast arc back uh, to the home key, uh, while similarly to the sonata form of the classical period. Parisian critics regarded this as unconventional. It is here that the listener is introduced to the theme uh, of the artist beloved, or the edifice, Um, Throughout the movement, there is a simplicity in the way melodies and themes are presented, uh, which Robert Schumann likened uh, likened to uh, Beethoven's epigrams, ideas that could be extended uh, had the composer chosen to. In part, it is because Berlioz rejected writing the more symmetrical melodies than in academic fashion fashion, Mm -hmm. and instead looked uh, for melodies that were so intense and every note uh, as to define normal harmonization. So, on to the second movement. It's called a dance. Uh, bye. Uh,
1: again, quoting from Berlioz's program notes, quote, The artist finds himself in the most diverse situations in life, in the tumult of a festive party, in the peaceful contemplation of the beautiful sights of nature. Yet everywhere, whether in town or in the countryside, the beloved image keeps haunting him and throws his spirit into confusion. And that's all it says for that, that movement. The um, He's gotta love the word they fix. That'd be a great name for a cologne. <laughs> uh, working on it. See Berlioz's face on the front of the bottle. Uh, the, the second movement has a mysterious sounding introduction that creates an atmosphere of impending excitement, sort of foreboding, uh, which is followed by a passage which is covered uh, with uh, the sounds of two harps. Uh, then the flowing waltz theme appears. Uh, of course, the waltz, for most folks uh familiar with the term waltz, it's a triple dance. So this thing is derived from the ide fix at first, and then it transforms. Uh, more formal statements of the ide Fix twice interrupt this waltz. Uh, so the movement is the only one to feature the two harps. It's a pretty sweet gig for a harpist. Yes, i have to chill. Just hang out for a little bit, bring a novel, things are good. Uh, providing the glamour and sensual richness of the ball, and may also symbolize the object of the young man's affection. Uh, Berlioz wrote extensively in his memoirs of his trials and tribulations in having the symphony performed, due to a lack of capable harpists and harps, especially in Germany. Poor guy just couldn't find one. We have the same problem in the American South, but... Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, how many harpists do we really know? Though I did go to a church one time, they had like 12 harpists, wow. one right? And they were all children as Muslim. Were a <laughs> well, that's the future for the past,
0: there's future. I tell you, man, Memphis, Tennessee is a strange place. Oh, man, <laughs> that's another thing. If you wanna be a, uh, if you wanna make money as a musician, Study some harp. <laughs> study some harp, man. People, I mean, they won't know to hire you, but if you tell
1: them that you play harp, they will employ They'll you. They'll call you back. They'll yeah. call you back. <laughs> uh, so another feature of this movement is that Berlioz added a part for a solo coordinate to his autograph score, although it wasn't was not included in the score published in his lifetime. Uh, of course, the cornet um, is uh, like a trumpet, just it looks a little smaller, has a warmer tone, tuned the same. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the work has most often been played and recorded without the solo cornet part. Uh, conductors Jean uh, Martinson, uh, Sir Colin Davis, Otto Klemperer, Gustavo Dudamel, and Leonard Slatkin have employed this part for cornet and performances at the symphony. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's fun to add stuff, and who doesn't love the cornet? Yeah, You can just smell the hot dogs and
0: you hear, hear a good cornet. <laughs> It's American history and it's right on your <laughs> mouth. Let me go back for, to, to the first moment for a second because I just remember something. Sure. Um, so, uh, the, uh, one of the reasons why it was very daunting to do a podcast on this p- uh, particular piece is because there's so much out there about this piece. I mean, we're trying to do the best we can to kind of condense everything into a one whatever 30 minute podcast. But there's a lot of really good resources um in youtube you can find uh a lecture by leonard bernstein about this piece and it's fantastic it's so great and one of the things that he talks in the first first moment is um he says that uh, what the ac- the accompaniment to the f- to the melody is like is, is he's he's you know comparing the melody with with the, having a trip and he's saying you know because uh, on top of the melody, the the the, the strings are doing like chasin, like this very aggressive thing, and it's like this is like a, he says he's saying that this is like the psychedelic uh, part of the of the of the piece. It's really great. I'll put a, a link. I'll put a link to the to Bernstein's lecture because it's really good. If you want to know a, a little more about that, sure. Okay. So, the third moment, which is, uh, how do you say? Saint-Auchamp. Saint-Auchamp. <laughs> the scene in the fields. Uh, so, I'm going to
1: read the, the notes, the program notes first. Uh, one evening in the countryside, he hears two shepherds in the distance dialoguing with their hans de vache. Uh, this pastoral duet, the setting, the, the gentle rustling of the trees in the wind, some causes for hope that he has recently just. Dis- that he has recently conceived, all conspired to restore to his heart an unaccustomed feeling of calm and to give to his thoughts a happier coloring. He broods on his loneliness and hopes that soon he will no longer be on his own. But what if she betrayed him? This mingled hope and fear, these ideas of happiness disturbed by dark premonitions, form the subject of the Adagio. At the end, one of the shepherds resumes his rance de vache. Uh, The other one no longer answers. Distant sound of thunder, solitude,
0: Silent. Yeah. So the two shepherds uh, Berlioz mentions in the notes are depicted w- by the English horn, um, an offstage oboe uh, tossing an evocative melody back and forth. After the English horn ovo conversation, uh, the principal theme of the movement appears uh, on solo flute and violins. Berlioz uh, savaged this theme from his abandoned Mrs. Z- um The ID fix uh, returns in the middle of the movement played by oboe and flute. Uh, the sound of distance thunder at the end of the movement is a striking passage uh, uh, to, to, for four timpani. It's striking, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: If you if love timpani, Berlioz is your man. Mm-hmm. The dude is aggressive with the timpanies. in any piece that uses them. Uh, so uh, the fourth movement, the one after the one we just talked about, is a Marche au Suppice, the march to the scaffold. Uh, So Berlioz's program notes read this Quote Convinced that his love is unappreciated The artist poisons himself with opium The dose of narcotic While too weak to cause his death Plunges him into a very heavy sleep Accompanied by the strangest of visions He dreams that he has killed his beloved That he is condemned Led to the scaffold And is witnessing his own execution As he cries for forgiveness The effects of of the narcotic set in He wants to hide but he cannot So he watches as an onlooker he watches on as an onlooker as he dies. Uh, the procession advances to the sound of a march that is sometimes somber and wild and sometimes brilliant and solemn, in which a dull sound of heavy footsteps follows without transition uh, the loudest outbursts. At the end of the march, the first four bars of the Ede fixe reappear like a final thought of love interrupted by a fatal blow when his head bounces down the steps. Unquote. And if, yeah, I do encourage you to actually listen to that part because it is... It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on, Berlioz having to de- literally depict in sound. Whoa, <clears throat> oh, yay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry headphone people. Uh, so, uh, Berlioz claimed to have written the fourth movement in a single night. Promise me, I mean, I, I promise you, Hector, I really do believe you. you know? <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, he reconstructed music from an unfinished project, his opera La Juge. Uh, The the movement here begins with a timpani um, doing sextuplets and thirds for which he directs, quote, the first quaver of each half bar is to be played with two drumsticks, the other five with the right-hand drumsticks. Uh, So lots of just just very strong percussive section here. So the movement proceeds as a march, filled with blaring horns and rushing passages uh, and scurrying figures that later show up in the last movement. Before the musical depiction of his execution, there's a brief nostalgic recollection of the idée Fix where he's, you can sort of see him looking up and and he sees in the crowd, uh, yeah, Harriet or <laughs> whoever this inception is about. Harriet. <laughs> um, and he sees her and he thinks of the of the Day Fix shortly before his um, his head is chopped off. And of course, this is all in a dream. He's just dreaming, having his head chopped off. Uh, because, I mean, if this were a if it were really the case, the piece would end right there, right? True. <laughs> uh, okay, so... <laughs> um, so this, uh, the brief recollection of the innate fix happens in a solo clarinet part, and it's almost the only thing that you hear, uh, as though representing the last conscious thought of the soon-to-be-executed man. Uh, immediately following this is a single, short, fortissimo G minor chord, the fatal blow of the guillotine blade, uh, followed by a series of pizzicato notes representing the rolling of the severed head into the basket. Uh, after his death, the final nine bars of the movement contain a victorious series of G Major brass chords, along with rolls of the snare drums with, within the entire orchestra seemingly intended to convey the cheering of the uh, onlooking throng. And mm-hmm. it's just it's, uh, This is the movement that uh, the textbook I taught of, taught out of chose to yeah. share with people, was the fourth movement. <clears throat> just because it's, it's so literal, yeah. the whole head being chopped off mm-hmm. thing.
0: Um, The last moment, uh, which is son de nuit du sabbat, the the dream of the night of the sabbath. Um, The the program notes, he sees himself at a witch's sabbath Sabbath, in the midst of a hideous uh, gathering of shades, sorcerers, and monsters of every kind who have come together to his funeral. Strange sounds, groans, outbursts of laughter, distant shouts which seem to be answered by more shouts. The beloved melody appears one more once more, but has now lost its noble and shy character, uh, it is now no more than a vulgar dance tune, trivial and grotesque. It is she who is coming to the Sabbath. Roar of the light at her arrival, she joins the, di- the diabolical orgy, the funeral uh, Neil trolls, burlesque parody of the Dies Irae, the dance of the witches, uh, th- this dance combined with the Dies Irae, uh, so, so, of course, the DS year is the chant. And this, so he combines the DS year with the E Fix, and it's like a crazy, you know, tumultuous dance. Um, so, uh, this movement can be divided into sections according to tempo changes. Uh, the introduction is largo, in common time, creating an ominous quality through dynamic uh, variation and instrumental effects particularly in the strings, uh, the piccados, for s- forzandos and that, that kind of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, at bar 21 of uh, the movement, the the tempo changes to allegro, and the meter changes to 6-8. The return of the fix as a vulgar dance tune is depicted by the C clarinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of C clarinet, they're delightful little instruments. <laughs> uh, this is interrupted by an allegro, a psi section, in cut common, bar,
0: uh, cut common time over in bar 29. Mm-hmm. The e flat then returns as a prominent E-flat Clarinet solo uh, at bar 40 uh, it's in 6-8 and Allegro. Uh, the E-flat Clarinet combines, uh, co- contributes um, a sharper, more shrill timbre than the C-clarinet. Of course, the E-flat Clarinet is the, the piccolo Clarinet. The
1: E-flat Clarinet is... Is hilarious. I think uh, if if you enjoy the sound of the B flat clarinet, and you even more like the sound of the C, the E flat clarinet. Is a point Is oh, it's it's the perfect clarinet. If if you could just have an orchestra of only E flat clarinets, I can imagine it would just be the most extraordinary sound. It's very squeaky, very shrill sound. Yeah.
0: You know, mm-hmm.
1: um, No offense to E flat clarinet specialists. No, that was, that was he was
0: he was going for that though. He right? was
1: absolutely going for that. But I'm not sure the inventor of the E flat clarinet. <laughs> Oh, totally appreciate it. I'm Okay, uh, okay. So, uh, so at bar 80, there is one bar of a la breve where you go very fast. Uh, the descending uh, quarter notes in unison through the entire orchestra uh, are, are, are flow through this section. Again in 6-8, this section sees the introduction of tubular bells and fragments of the witch's round dance. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this fun little. Mm-hmm. It's 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 quite horrendously Halloween-y. I think everyone yeah. should enjoy it, right? right around the time of Halloween, if you're into
0: Halloween, sure. <laughs> the the DS series begins at bar 127. Uh, the motif derived from the 13th century Latin sequence, like we said. Uh, it is initially stated in the unison uh, um, between the initial combination of four bassoons and two tubas. So it's like a very low, of course, very low uh, statement. Yeah, so at
1: bar tw- 222, so this has several bars in it, this this piece, uh, the the witch's round dance motive is repeatedly stated in the strings to be interrupted by three syncopated notes in the brass. This boom, 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 those three notes. Uh, This leads to the ronde du sabbat, the sabbath round at bar 241, where the motive
0: finally is expressed in full. hmm And uh, the dsiré... Um, at Rondo Sabath ensemble section is at bar 414. So it's pretty long, I guess. I mean it's it's a lot of bars, but it's kind of it goes kind of it fast. It goes by really fast. Yeah. Um, there are a host of effects, including um eerie con leno in the strings, which is when you hit the, the strings with the other part of the bow, we you actually hit it with the 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 wood of the boat, which that's what it means, coleño, it means, means with wood, basically.
1: But you'll scratch the bow. <laughs> you don't want to ruin the
0: boat! Oh, it's the effect, it's really cool, and the first <laughs> moment is awesome, dude. I remember I sat with uh,
1: with your major professor, uh, when he was teaching us how to use the, the string instruments, and whenever he does coleño, he 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 used to play violin, he doesn't anymore, yeah. I don't think, but, uh-huh. but he doesn't use the wood side, he just hits it with the, the with the hair, just the hair. hits it, you know, <laughs> instead of actually... Cause I, he said, I only did it once, and look at what happened the back side of this, this cheap uh-huh. so it, it is a. You know, there are some hazards involved with playing this piece.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this this Conleño uh, represents the bowling of the witch's cauldron uh, to the blast of the wind. There's a lot of effects. They represent a lot of things. Um, <laughs> the climatic finale combines the sombre DSRA uh, melody with the wind fugue of the Round of Sabat. Uh, Berlus explains that the aim of the second kind of imitation is to reproduce the intonations of the passions uh, and the emotions and even to trace musical image or metaphor of, oge- of objects that can only be seen. The continual interruption of the ds motif uh, by the string symbolizes this continual fight of death until the moment and peace eventually, as we all do, in, as we all do into the ds theme and our eventual but necessary deaths. Mm. He later adds, quote, Emotional imitation is designed to arouse
1: in us by means of sound the notion of the several passions of the heart and to awaken solely through the sense of hearing the impressions that human beings experience only through the other senses, uh, such such as the goal of expression, depiction, or musical metaphors, unquote. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, As a part of this, he uses an example of cyclical structure. An idea drawn from Beethoven's use of similar rhythmic structures in the fifth symphony of course um, and the idea of musical cycles such as song cycle. Uh, Berlioz did not, did not know of Mendelssohn's octet uh, which also uses this device but of course i mean the the clear example is Beethoven's fifth which the the theme always comes back the same thing here the sure. theme always comes back i mean it's pretty simple um to the yeah. saturation mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um is that it That's all I've got, Great. Uh, Well, um, this wraps up another episode. Um, uh, If you have any questions or suggestions or anything that you want to tell us, uh, write to us at symphonicpodcast@gmail.com. at You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube. um, You can rate us and like us if you want. Um, And I think that's good. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening.